Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 105, The Cobbler's Kid. We're at the point where I've covered two out of three topics that I wanted to knock out to contextualize the Soviet Union in the 1920s and how its experiences shaped it going into the global crisis of the 30s. The first, obviously, was the terrifyingly destructive civil war that undermined the Great Project from the very start. The second was the evolution of the Union during the 20s and how the liberalizing experiment of the NEP created a great debate over the future of the USSR. And now we're finally at the third and final phase, the rise of Joseph Stalin. Of the individuals I've zeroed in on in the past, it is he that stirs the most debate even into present day. First and foremost, he was notable for his cold-heartedness. Where his nemesis, Adolf Hitler, was emotional to the point of madness, Stalin carried out his grim work with a seeming indifference. Maybe an occasional bit of dark, sarcastic humor. And that work dominated his life, as even before he consolidated control of the Soviet Union, he was a workaholic and a troubleshooter, qualities that Lenin sought to utilize in promoting him. And that indifference to his labors was also a shield that masked his true ambitions. The real trick to Stalin's rise was that his colleagues among the old Bolsheviks really didn't see him coming, at least until it was too late. Because unlike some of the other individuals I've covered, Stalin was not overly charismatic as a speaker and had to work to command a room. He was a Georgian, a non-Slavic people with a non-Slavic language, and his Russian was considered nasally and bumpkinish. His abilities rested more in expertly navigating committees and assembling alliances and networks of loyalty, odd as that last part might sound given where his allies usually ended up, which all added up to someone who was capable of taking the young state and remaking it in his image, which is to say, a cold and unhappy place, but was also a state composed of survivors who by necessity could deliver while under Stalin's leadership which is probably why there's still controversy around him. You'd think a man whose policies resulted in millions of deaths would be a closed book, whereas most guys like him were self-destructive to a point where they got into trouble, Stalin won all, pretty much all his battles. Clumsily and after terrible loss oftentimes, but he won them. If other people kicked off the crises of the 30s, it was eventually Stalin who survived them and enhanced his own position beyond what anyone could have dreamed in the 20s. Again, after millions of deaths, of course. But I've been speaking generalities about him for long enough already, so let's get the biography underway. Because before we cover Stalin's consolidation of power after Lenin's death, I figured we might as well get to know the man's life up to that point. This latest tale begins in the city of Gori, a little over 35 miles to the northwest of the Georgian capital of Tiflis, modern-day Tbilisi. It was a small town back in 1870 when a 20-year-old cobbler named Basarian Yugashvili settled down there. Let's call him Beso for short, because everyone else did. He had originated in the village of Didi Lilo, but changed scenery after his serf father passed away and his innkeeper brother was murdered by bandits. He had been invited by a local cobbler who operated his own workshop and needed more hands, as the boot business was big in those days. There were almost 130,000 Russian troops stationed in Georgia, and they all needed boots. And Besso reportedly was a fine craftsman when it came to a pair of good Georgian-style boots. Another transplant to Gori and child of serfs was Katavin Galadza, 
although she was known by Kiki for short. Her beauty caught Besso's eye, and the two married in 1874. The wedding was a rambunctious affair, with the two being paraded through the streets of the town. Their marriage was actually a happy one at first. Despite being eight years her senior, Kiki thought of Besso as a catch, considering him smart and well-dressed. According to her recollections, he was considered every bit a Georgian knight by everyone, and that he chose her aroused no small amount of jealousy among her friends. The two settled down, and Besso opened his own shop, which prospered and kept them a cut above the poverty that surrounded them, which was remarked upon by Stalin in his later days, as he pointed out that in his earliest years, he could have been considered to having belonged to the petit bourgeois, although, personally, I say that was overly dramatic, the Yugoshvillis might have had more butter than their neighbors and lived inside solid walls, but they were still categorized as peasants all the same. Their attempts at rearing a family were not as happily blessed. Like so many other families in the long stretch of human history before modern medicine, they lost their first two sons, one at the age of two and the other at six months. Sometimes people conjecture from the comfort of the modern day that people back then were harder and more inured to loss since it happened so much more frequently. But that has never been the case, and both parents were left devastated by the loss of their children. Besso turned to drink, Kiki to religion. They placed icons in their home. They prayed in the mountaintop church above Gori. Their third child proved to be a charm. And no, I'm not going to dwell too hard on using that cliché because it was little Josef Yugoshvili, born on December 18th, 1878, as the old calendar marks it. His pet name was Soso, which was the Georgian diminutive of Joseph, and after losing two babies, Kiki was very protective of her surviving son, which must have been a stressful experience because he seemed determined to contract every disease under the sun, which led his mother to turn to the only recourse she felt she had available, prayer and lots of it. As Soso grew up, he spoke from an early age and loved Georgian music, something he carried with him all his life. Perhaps more surprising was his love of collecting flowers. But hey, nobody's born a Stalin. Kiki actually taught Soso to walk by tempting him with flowers. One darkly amusing anecdote was, during a wedding, the small Joseph grabbed a flower at the bride's veil. His godfather joked, If even now you want to steal the bride... God knows what you'll do when you're older. Besso, though, couldn't get past his depressions and continued to brood and drink to excess. It didn't help that the cobbler business started to decline after some initial years of success. Imports from outside of Georgia started to compete with his business and his fortunes started to fade, which was hard on Besso as he had managed to build up his own shop with hired hands of his own to manage. Gradually, it all slipped away from him. It didn't help that money was scarce in Georgia, but good red wine was in abundance. So, people used that wine instead of paying in cash, which meant that Besso often was sitting on a lot of it. True, he could trade it for other things, stuff his family needed, but he opted to drink it down more and more. He also did some of his cobbling in a friend's tavern, which was not a good environment for a guy who was by then a full-blown alcoholic. The shop eventually was kept going only by the efforts of Besso's apprentices, while the man himself was usually a shaking wreck. The change was not overlooked by Kiki, who despaired of what her husband was turning into. 
Kiki, for her part, was kind of a bon vivant around town, which back in those days was frowned upon for a woman and aroused the jealousies of Besso. If he caught wind of Kiki getting too close to another man, he'd set himself upon them or vandalize their property. This pattern of violent behavior led him to getting the nickname Crazy Besso. Kiki's dalliances around Gori are a matter of some historical debate, but really only exist because her son grew up to be who he was. Many of the inhabitants of Gori from those days claim she was having numerous affairs and Besso's rages were well-founded. But then again, there had always been gossip about Kiki, she being quite the looker in her youth. Add a famous son, and you have a line of people claiming they were secretly related to the ruler of the Soviet Union. Stalin himself didn't help the historical record by constantly making insinuations to his inner circle that Besso probably wasn't his dad, and also in that he kept in touch and even showed favors to certain people close to him and his mother from those days. Besso himself would get rip-roaring drunk and claim his son to be somebody's bastard. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who was sleeping with who, only that the insinuation of impropriety drove Besso to self-destructive behavior. He began to enter the really bad end of alcoholism and became physically violent to both his wife and son. As his fortunes declined, Besso beat his son worse and worse. A particularly bad incident was recorded where Soso showed up to the police with his face covered in blood, and when the cops reached their home, found Besso strangling Kiki. Kiki herself alternated between spoiling Soso as best she could and thrashing him when he was unruly, which from early on was quite often as young Joseph was a stubborn child who had a penchant for getting into trouble. Later in life, after his consolidation of power, Stalin visited his mother for the last time. In an amazingly frank conversation, given that it was recorded for posterity, he asked her why they beat him so much. In old age, she brushed it off as not having done any great harm. Which, beyond the obvious argument against that, given that he was bringing it up in what he probably knew was his last conversation with her, and he himself was almost 60 at the time, the experience clearly stuck with him. Not to say that this wasn't a sadly common experience back in those days, but this example produced Stalin. So draw your own conclusions, and also, don't hit your kids. The beatings, though, did not stop Kiki from living her life around town and being sociable. Unfortunately, one man that Kiki flirted with was the gory chief of police, a flirtation that led a lot of people to consider him to be the main candidate for Joseph's true parentage. And despite being chief of police... Besso didn't make an exception in his case. When the cop approached Besso to have a little chat about some smashed windows that Besso was responsible for, he struck the cop with a cobbler's tool. Which, uh, openly attacking the chief of police might be bold, but you have to expect some consequences. Besso might have been wanting to die anyway. By that point, he was consumed by booze and firmly believed his wife was sleeping with every guy in town and that the whole town was also mocking him for it. The whole situation probably had broken him by that point. Kiki had made the observation that he was reduced to only half a man. The police chief honestly took it better than he might have, though, and simply told Besso to leave town, which he did, heading to Tiflis in 1884 when Stalin was around six. This left Kiki alone with little Joseph, and life for both became considerably harder than before. Over Stalin's childhood, they would move around town nine times, losing the only home Soso had ever known and never being able to settle down. 
Stalin also contracted smallpox in 1884, and while he survived when so many others during the outbreak that year didn't, his face was scarred with pox barks, earning him the nickname Poxy. Even the Tsar's secret police would call him the Pockmarked as their special nickname. It's hard to tell because so many of his photographs were doctored after the fact to remove the scars, but Stalin's face was pretty cratered. His left arm also developed incorrectly, leaving it to be weaker than his right. Whether that was due to some malady or a physical accident, we don't know, but life was coming hard at young Soso. Kiki supported them by working as a housekeeper, and using that position, she got close to a local priest, Father Charkviani, who was also one of Besso's old drinking buddies. Doing so first secured the mother and son a room above his home, and then allowed Joseph to sit in on the Russian lessons the priest gave his own sons. Learning Russian obviously opened a lot of doors, which Besso had previously been adamant on keeping closed. The drunk had sneered at education of all kinds, and wanted Joseph to follow him in the cobbler business. Kiki, though, was overjoyed at Joseph's aptitude, as she was hopeful of him becoming a priest. The reason behind that was because they didn't have to work too hard and were respected, both desirable traits in a job, especially back in those days. The lessons did the trick, too, and Stalin got into a four-year program by 1889 at the Gory Church School. It was attended by 150 boys, all of whom came from much better social standing. In a heartwarming bit of community, the extended network of family and friends that Kiki had built up helped pitch in and ensure Joseph was clothed properly so that he fit in. Although they did go overboard, and the other kids gawked at the one who obviously came from a poorer background, being better dressed than everyone else. The other kids gave him space, as Joseph even then was far more intense than the others, probably on account of his rough home life. Apparently, he was noted for being both studious and having a great alto singing voice, according to Stephen Kotkin's biography, which I'll just take his word on it for that one. Unfortunately, during this time, he was also hit by a carriage, getting knocked unconscious and having his legs run over. It didn't cripple him totally, but it messed up his walking for the rest of his life. It was actually the second major carriage act incident in his life, with an earlier one being a possible reason why his left arm was jacked up. Now, in addition to being poxy, he was also crimped. This second time, though, left him in a bad way. Bad enough that Besso came back into town to bring them back with him to Tiflis. Besso had the bright idea that once his son was recovered, he'd forego a return to school and instead brought Joseph, now age 12, into the cobbling business. Except the cobbling business wasn't quite what it had been for Besso. He had gotten a job at the Adelknov Tannery, which was a far cry from the old artisan workshops of bygone days and much more an industrialized operation, which also meant it utilized both adult and child labor to man its machines, and Joseph was now well old enough to get a job. The conditions were squalid as you might imagine a factory in the later 1800s, and a tannery carried with it the added bonus of having the sickening smell of raw leather. Stalin would later recall that his father's descent into the proletariat hadn't done him any favors. Luckily for Joseph, his mom wasn't about to let him fall into that life. She moved to Tiflis as well, but wasn't living with Besso, and instead worked at getting her boy back and returned to his schooling in Gori. In doing so, she revealed a relentless side that her son would pick up as he grew older as well. She borderline bullied her family and their friend circle into supporting her efforts to get her son back, which succeeded by September 1890. This was no small feat, 
as convincing people that a child belonged with their mother back in those much more misogynistic days required overwhelming social support, which she managed to get. Plus, there was Joseph himself, who, having spent a short time in the tannery, was all for going back to school and becoming the priest his mom wanted him to be. That Besso had also become kind of a drunk loser probably didn't help his case either. And Joseph's sympathies were clearly with his mother, who he adored far more than his absentee dad. He would speak fondly on occasion about his father in his later years, recollecting that Besso would sneak him some wine, which in due course became Stalin's favorite as well. His father would also regale him with stories of Georgian bandit heroes fighting injustices from the mountains, which were always a favorite of Soso. But by and large, Soso hated his father, and this light kidnapping incident was the last time he would spend significant time with the elder Yugoshvili. Besso would still send his son shoes and correspond occasionally, but was never again a really active part of Joseph's life. He eventually left the tannery to work as a cobbler in the old-fashioned way again in a stall operated by an Armenian in Tiflis. There isn't anything really reliable to go on aside from his last days when, in 1909, he was admitted to a hospital and died of liver failure. He was buried in a common grave that was supposedly identified, but not properly confirmed, in the 1970s. For the young Joseph, though, the final break with his father meant that he would be able to return to school and get the education he needed to become a respectable man. Except that he also indulged in street hooliganism as well, which again, pretty much the norm for kids in cities in those days. They didn't have a lot to do and no money to escape their immediate woes. It didn't help that the whole damn town indulged in the same pastimes every now and again either. An old Georgian custom was for the town to party and drink before the menfolk then divided into two teams, which would then engage in a free-for-all brawl until one side cried uncle, whereupon both sides would laugh it all off and resume drinking. The local priests, as drunk, if not more so than their flock, would put on a show of refereeing the fights while the police focused on making sure people didn't get too hurt. The crowd was also organized by age groups, so kids were able to duke it out with others of their own age, and the elderly got to keep having fun if they so chose. More conventionally, the community was big into wrestling tournaments as well, which were considered big affairs. Whatever passed for a local orchestra would play while matches went on, and local nobles would provide patronage to their selected champions. In an environment that prized pugilistic prowess, Stalin fit right in. Even if the schoolboys were considered the well-off and intelligent male offspring in the town, they broke down into gangs and fought each other all the same. Officially, they were banned by the church officials, but they still did it anyway, with the staff usually stopping to watch their pupils tear into each other. Soso wasn't the biggest by far, but he was the most stubborn and willing to take a beating, never giving up even when he was down and getting clobbered. It wasn't all in the schoolyard either. They took their fights to the streets where the other kids' gangs were. There, Soso rubbed shoulders with youths of both the lower and higher social strata. As regardless of background, the community was small enough that everyone got intermingled. And it wasn't all fighting all the time, although it was a big part of being a kid then and there. They did the usual small-town kid stuff like going on hikes, sneaking around farms, doing petty vandalism. That they grew up in Georgia meant they lived in a still fairly wild land of fast-moving rivers and challenging mountains. Joseph developed a strong loyalty to the kids he ran with, but his dominating nature all started to shine through as well. He demanded obedience from the boys under him, 
and undermine those considered higher in the pecking order. His imperious attitude ran up against another far larger than he. Kiki had found it necessary for Joseph to learn Russian early on because the Tsarist state was becoming more stringent in the outlying territories, of which Georgia was one. To crack down on resistance and assimilate the conquests, Russian became the only allowed language of education, something that chafed not only Stalin, but all the other boys as well. They were a proud people willing to fight, so first being occupied, then having their language suppressed didn't go over well. Soso loved the music, the poetry, and the striking landscapes of his homeland, and did not want to endure being told what to do or how to live, and wanted his country to live free. Slightly ironic given his later attitude towards Georgian nationalism, although his background also meant that he wasn't joking when he spoke about understanding the Georgian desire to break away. Also early on, he was devout in his faith. Part of his education in the, in the church school meant that he participated in the rituals, doing readings and singing in the choir, both of which he reportedly excelled at to the point where people came to just see him. He also showed interests in painting and acting. During the latter, he would mug for laughs while on stage. And it was poetry that he developed a love for. Up until becoming a revolutionary and losing the time needed to keep up with it, he would always be writing poetry, even composing his letters to people in verse. Other than that, he read constantly and voraciously, becoming one of the top students in the school and a point of pride for the institution. But he still had that darker side even then, too. When a boy snitched on one of Soso's friends about eating communion bread, Stalin condemned the snitch as an informer and beat him senseless. When a teacher tried to co-opt Joseph into becoming an informer himself, he arranged for some older 18-year-olds to take the teacher into an empty room where Joseph very pointedly advised the teacher not to monitor the student body too hard. There was also the experience after returning from Besso's quasi-abduction. After returning to Gori and having spent a brief spell in the tannery, Stalin had a newfound appreciation for what the poor of the world had to go through in their day-to-day -day trials. The industrial despair he witnessed also shook his faith. He started reading outside the school library, encountering works far more challenging to the status quo, ranging from Georgian nationalists to Charles Darwin. This coincided with him growing up and having to move on to the next level of his schooling. Gory, though, would not be the setting for it. Instead, starting in August 1894, he was enrolled in the Tiflis Seminary. This was no small feat, as while Joseph's marks were exemplary and he had the recommendation of his entire school staff, there was a radical strike going on in the seminary and they were restricting new applicants. Kiki, though, again rode to the rescue, cajoling everyone she knew in Gori to raise money for lodging and then used a family connection to get Soso admitted. If young Stalin had been notable for being among the poorest students in his Gori class, it was even more pronounced once he reached Tiflis. The culture was going to get far different than in Gori as well. Tiflis was a full-blown city of 160,000, where Georgians only accounted for a quarter of the population, with Russians and Armenians each accounting for 30%. For the rest, you could find Greeks, Persians, Jews, Azerbaijanis, Turks, people from all around the greater region. The seminary students' schedules were also far more regulated, and they were restricted in their ability to go out into the city. It was a gray, joyless environment that was compared to imprisonment. 
The seminary staff was also more tightly controlled by the Tsarist authorities, and all Georgian literature was banned, and even the Russian reading was restricted to material over 50 years old. The most hated of the staff was Father Abishidza, ironically the only Georgian. He kept informants among the students and monitored their activities as close as he could. He was nicknamed among the students as the Black Spot. Relations between students and staff were tense, and nine years prior, a teacher had been run through with a sword for denigrating Georgian culture. The oppressive atmosphere was perfect for turning the best and brightest away from God and towards rapid and violent social change. For Joseph, he mostly kept his head down at first and focused on his studies, which were, as usual, top-notch. It was a hard reality that going to the school was expensive, and he oftentimes had to beg the administration to look the other way when he was a little short with tuition money, so he didn't want to get on their bad side. That didn't stop Besso from hitting him up when he heard his son was in town, but Stalin gave his father the cold shoulder, as it was immediately obvious that Besso only needed wine money. Soso kept up with his poetry, and actually got published in Georgian anthologies under the name Sosolo. His verses explored the contrast of violence, personified by nature and man, versus gentleness, personified by birds and music. His singing was also considered good enough that he could make a living doing it. But as he grew older, it was politics and literature that increasingly grabbed his attention. During their limited hours allowed outside the seminary, Joseph and his fellows would scrounge up books in the relatively cosmopolitan city, usually secondhand, that were banned inside the school and smuggle them in. They formed a late-night reading circle, at first just reading for fun, but as the black spot cracked down on them, their reading became more a form of resistance. Joseph had taken a liking to Victor Hugo, but when caught with his books, he was sent to a cell as punishment and he became more rebellious. He started reading anything he wanted to and hardly tried to shield that fact from the staff. He endured their punishments and reprimands and only became more stubborn. The patricide, though, set something off inside of him. This was a Georgian novel about a love forbidden by the authorities, and when that love gets the couple killed, their friend, the mountain bandit Koba, swoops in to avenge them. The tale of mountain vengeance appealed to Stalin, and he adopted Koba as his first nickname that he picked out for himself. In Koba, Stalin found his aspirational figure. He was a nationalist, a bandit and therefore a commoner, and had a commitment to loyalty. He demanded that his fellows call him Koba, although most of his actual friends still preferred Soso. But it was another set of works, those of Karl Marx, that led to a sudden turn in Stalin's trajectory. Yes, he was rebellious insofar as being in seminary goes, but that only went so far. Marx and Engels laid out the knot of problems facing the world and the steps to fix them. He began sneaking out at night to meet with workers' unions, and as he gained real-world experience, he grew bored with the seminary. He pushed for his reading circle to start taking real action, and when rebuffed, started his own group in 1897. The timing was auspicious, as Georgian socialists began to reconvene in Tiflis after intervals of being broken up. Of course, Stalin being Stalin, he immediately made an enemy with the group's leader, Noe Jordania, who had recently returned from exile. Jordania was forceful, but of a gentle nature, and in the future would be part of the Menshevik faction of socialists. 
Stalin wanted to make his presence known and directly asked him how he could help, to which Jordania told him to study more. Not the answer that Stalin wanted to hear. Stalin instead became more well-known with the workers' groups in and around Tiflis, making many friends and contacts with the people on the ground. By early 1897, Stalin and Father Abashidza were butting heads on the regular. Joseph was caught reading banned books over a dozen times, and the black spot nearly lost his mind in a rage, raiding the entire school looking for Joseph's cachet's books. Stalin refused to submit to the priests, and he shirked his ecclesiastical duties. Kiki caught wind of what her son was up to, but when she stopped by in Tiflis to confront him, he turned on her. He yelled at her to mind her own business, to which she asked rhetorically how he could expect to overthrow the Tsar, which is kind of funny in retrospect, but in 1897 was a very good question. Stalin cooled down and assured her he wasn't a rebel which was a lie and said only to allay Kiki's concerns. The battles with Abashidza were turning into a farce in the meantime. When the priest found yet another trunk of books and started to carry them off, a gang of boys tackled him and took the books back. Another time, he yanked a book from Stalin's hands, to which Soso simply took it back and went on reading it, daring the priest to try again. By May 1899, he had been expelled. He claimed it was for reading and spreading Marxist propaganda. Kiki claimed she took him out of school due to him suffering from a bout of pneumonia. The biography young Stalin conjectures he knocked up a girl. It was probably the administration, though, getting clever and simply raising the tuition fees to where Joseph and Kiki couldn't pay them. So, Joseph was now out of the seminary, and much to the disappointment of his mother, he'd have to find a new path. Luckily for him, unluckily for a whole bunch of other people, one presented itself. He had been getting into the works of a new name on the socialist scene, a guy named Tulin, which was an alias of none other than Vladimir Lenin. Which, yes, Lenin was also an alias, but whatever. Done with the seminary, unsatisfied by moderate socialists, he was set to embark on a much more thorough brand of revolution. That early career underground is where we'll pick up next week as he gets his revolutionary career going. Join me then. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.